Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Christy Petrenko. Christy Petrenko, PhD, is a clinical psychologist and researcher who has been conducting research with individuals with FASD since 2003. She completed her graduate training with Edward Riley and Sarah Madison in San Diego, California in 2009. And she is currently a faculty member at Mount Hope Family Center at the University of Rochester. Her research focuses on developing and evaluating interventions for people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, including the use of mobile health technology to increase access to care. She has experience training teams of providers, both regionally and internationally, in FASD diagnosis. Dr. Petrenko also runs a multidisciplinary FASD clinic providing diagnostic intervention and family support services in Rochester, New York. We can't always choose the music life plays for us, but we can choose how to dance to it. Author unknown. So I'm so happy today to be speaking with Dr. Christy Petrenko of the University of Rochester and of Mount Hope Family Center. I was so blessed to be able to watch and listen to uh, Dr. Petrenko during ProofCon 2020, the virtual FASD conference. Uh, She did an amazing EndNote presentation, and I reached out to her to ask her if she could really take some good nuggets from that presentation and share it with our audience at FASD Hope. So Dr. Petrenko, welcome to FASD Hope. Thank you, Natalie. And feel free to call me Christy. It's always strange to me to be (laughs) here. Dr. Petrenko, I think of like my father-in-law, but um, so Christy is fine. And thank you for having me. I really enjoy having these kind of opportunities to talk with people and and share what we have learned and, and learn from others as well. So Christy, um, first of all, your, your EndNote presentation, it was just the perfect end to the, the ProofCon conference because it really, I loved the topic of going from surviving to thriving with FASD. So uh, before we get more into that wonderful topic and our sharing about making that paradigm shift, I'd like to start off just by discussing your professional background and what led you to working with um, individuals that have fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Well, I first learned about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders when I was applying to graduate school. I was really interested in studying autism initially because that's what I knew from my experience as an undergraduate. But I was really fortunate that my application landed on the desk of Ed Riley in the joint doctoral program at San Diego State University of California, San Diego. I imagine some of your listeners may be familiar with his name, but for those who aren't, Dr. Riley's been studying FASD since the 1970s and is the director of our collaborative initiative on FASD. 
So when I first spoke to him, my only exposure to FAS had been about a paragraph in an undergrad psych class. Unfortunately, that's still pretty common today, but he was really willing to take a chance on me and I'm really thankful he did. So I began graduate training in 2003, studying the neuropsychological functioning of kids and adolescents with FASD. I was really eager to learn everything I could about FASD, but I remember being really shocked at the significant barriers to care and in over time became really passionate and wanted to dedicate my career to developing interventions and increasing access to care. So then I continued on my long convoluted educational journey, ended up at University of Minnesota, had a chance to work with Jeff Wozniak while I completed my clinical training, went on to University of Colorado, Denver, where I got my postdoc and learned about how to develop interventions. I worked with um, a woman named Heather Tausig and on her clinical trials with pre-adolescents in foster care. And this experience was super valuable because I not only learned how to design interventions and test them, but I learned about maltreatment and the foster care experience with, as you know, many kids with FASD have those experiences. And so it's been really useful to understand outcomes and you know experiences for families raising kids with FASD. So that gets me to 2011. And it was sort of at that next stage where my husband and I were trying to figure out, okay, where next? You know, how do we find two faculty jobs in the same city? And we were really fortunate to come upon University of Rochester. And we both found really wonderful jobs in communities and departments that are great fit for us. So I'm now at the Mount Hope Family Center, which is part of the University of Rochester. And it's it's been just a wonderful place to work um, with great integration between research and clinical and family support and really ed educating professionals across many aspects of development. So I, I really love working there. Um, and it's been giving me a lot of opportunity to explore and try things. That's an amazing journey. Um, what an amazing journey you've been on. So at University of Rochester, can before we uh, talk a little bit about our topic, um, can you just tell me some of the things that Mountain Hope Family Center offers for the community? Mount Hope Family Center is really a unique center within the university. We're located in a community environment near the university, but really centered within the community that we serve. And Mount Hope Family Center has been a leader in the field of developmental psychopathology, which is a mouthful to say, but it really is looking at sort of the intersection of, you know, development as well as you know, clinical challenges. So really thinking about development across the life course and different risks and protective factors that can impact people and their um, outcomes. So we, we have a lot of different areas that people and faculty at the center focus on. So I mainly focus on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. We have a lot of people that are really interested in um, child maltreatment and ways to help prevent and support families and their resilience who are experiencing that. Um, there's folks looking at many different factors, um, you know, poverty. Um, we have a very high concentration of poverty in Rochester. Um, 
and other things that impact, you know, stress, all types of different things. And so we have both basic science research as well as clinical trials. So it's a really rich environment. Um, in addition to our research, we also um, have a strong um, basis in evidence-based interventions. So we have supports and interventions as part of research trials, as well as through community contracts um, with our Department of Human Services, as well as community referrals. And we educate the next generation of providers as well in many different disciplines. That's fantastic. I remember you mentioning a lot about those factors and things that can be strengths or deficits in uh, someone having an FASD in terms of accessing care. I remember you um, discussing that in your EndNote presentation. Let's start talking about this topic. What are some barriers? And again, we're talking about shifting from surviving FASD to thriving with FASD. Let's start from the beginning. What barriers are there for individuals with FASD and their families in being able to access care. So what are the factors that are preventing people that have an FASD from receiving the care and uh, the accommodations and the support that they need? The biggest barrier overall is the, is the pervasive lack of knowledge about FASD. And this is in providers as well as the broader community. And this sort of kind of underlies many of the other barriers such as you know, so providers aren't getting trained in FASD. So as an undergrad, I had a paragraph. Like that's, it really keeps people from even thinking about this could be an FASD. So in order to get a diagnosis, you need to have a provider, a teacher, a parent to have the thought, oh, this could be FASD. So then they bring it to their doctor or the doctor thinks about it in their differential diagnosis. But without that, it's really hard to make that happen. There's also very few diagnostic providers in the state of New York, at least in upstate, so anything but New York City. There's really only our one main diagnostic clinic that we run at the University of Rochester. There are a few other providers that will make the diagnosis occasionally, but in terms of specialty care, we're the primary center for a, New York's a big state. So, and that's true across many states in the U.S. You know, there's not that many FASD-informed services or providers once you get a diagnosis for many families. FASD doesn't always help you qualify for the services you need. In New York, again, you can't get disability services unless you have full FAS. So our state office of disabilities does not recognize the full spectrum, even despite advocacy and education on our part. Um, so these are these are discouraging for families, and you know I think many families know what their children need, and it's just like banging your head against the wall over and over to try to get these things, you know. And when you do get services, the implementation isn't always the quality that you would like, and there's often an urge, particularly I think in the school settings and in some mental health services, depending on their setup. To, to remove those once a child reaches some success. And oftentimes you need those accommodations and supports for the long-term. So those are the, the many systems level barriers that we have seen in research as well as experience working with families. And then you got your family level barriers, time, money, juggling, 
a bunch of these disparate services, feeling overwhelmed, feeling defeated that the things you try don't always work the way you're hoping. So yeah, that is the, the part that can be discouraging. I know definitely for families, but even for researchers, you know, just seeing there's a lot that needs to be done. But I also have hope too, that there is many things we can do to overcome these, but, but there are moments where you're like, oh my gosh, where do we go from here? Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned hope because of course we're, we're going to end on that. That's going to be our, our big takeaway. But as a parent, I'm, I'm appreciative that you're mentioning both the systemic overall barriers as well as the familial barriers, because it really is there, there, there really are complex barriers, you know, within accessing proper care or accessing, getting a diagnosis. So I am really appreciative that you're mentioning that on those levels. What factors can help increase access of care? So there are, there are some things that, you know, the research has shown can be protective and that are helpful in accessing services. So having a stable and nurturing home can help promote um, being able to get services that you need. Having a caregiver with strong advocacy skills and knowledge about FASD and knowing what's out there can also be really helpful. And those are things that there are resources to help families with advocacy. You know, there are, there's national federally funded agencies that can help um, parent um, information centers, um, especially within the education system. I think, you know, there's some things that are harder to change. You know, there are some regions with relatively higher awareness of FASD and supports. If your child has more evidence of a disability, such as having a lower IQ or facial features in some places, that makes it easier. Younger children often have an easier time getting services. Um, some places a diagnosis can, can help you get the service that you need in other places it's not. So there's definitely some variability through. And I'd have to say one really important thing that can be helpful is parents and caregivers getting respite, social support and, and the self-care to have that energy to be able to pursue and advocate for those supports. Because unfortunately, given the way the system's barriers are, a lot of it does fall on parents and their support network to be able to make these things happen. So I, I think that's sort of the reality and the, some of the things that parents and families can definitely do to help get that access of care um, and other things are, are more at the systemic level that we need to really use our creative energy and find ways to to kind of have some of that grassroots movement to make a difference in partnering across. Absolutely. And I've found, you know, through our 18 plus years of lived experience that oftentimes the people who are the most helpful for us in this journey, especially since our son had such a late diagnosis were other fellow parent advocates were other fellow parent support groups, you know, people who could point us in the right direction. So Really, I, I, I appreciate that parent advocates, you know, helping each other out and, and pointing them to places like the Mount Hope Clinic, you know, center or that sort of thing. So let's talk about this model, this inspiring presentation you ended ProofCon 2020 with, shifting from surviving FASD to thriving with FASD. 
Can you give like a, a summary of it for our listening audience and, and what does it, what does it look like? What does it sound like? Yeah. So I know this is an audio podcast, so I don't have the, the privilege of having my like fancy little slide with all my little circles to show you all, but I'll, I'll try to describe it in words, but you know, basically it comes down to, we've made a lot of progress in understanding FASD and the related challenges we face in this society over the last 40 years. But much of what we've learned really tells us about the deficits, the barriers, and how people survive. This is the things we've just been talking about. It's important to know that information because it helps us get attention to the condition and identify areas for change. And I'd also like to start helping people shift to another way of looking at it. Um, and this is from thinking about how we can move from the surviving to more of a thriving model. We know a lot about those deficits and barriers, but we know very little about the strengths of people, at least from a research perspective, and the supports that work best across the lifespan. And so I really wanna encourage people to move more in this neurodevelopmental diversity view and think about, okay, what can we do to help them find meaningful interests and being included in life and celebrating all the abilities they do have? And, you know, what are those most effective supports? I think we've got a pretty good sense of where the challenges are and we need to move with beyond that. Um, they're not that they go away, they're there, but we can accommodate and support and help people live meaningful lives to the fullest that they can. So, you know, how do we get there? That's the part that can feel overwhelming at times. There's really a lot that can be done, um, but there's really three areas that stand out to me that I think we can really focus some of our efforts on. And those are, you know, really thinking about how to increase awareness and understanding of FASD, because I think that's critical. Increasing access to care, finding ways to make those supports accessible and scalable and reducing the stigma. I think that stigma piece is so huge. And I think to really work and have an impact, we need to be able to do all those things together. Yes. And it's, it's very challenging to have conversations about the science behind FASD when you're talking with someone who, who already, you know, has this preconception and, and, you know, is just so hung on the stigma of it, which again, we know it's a brain-based diagnosis. It can happen at any time during pregnancy. And we know more than, I think the number is about 50% of the pregnancies in the United States are unplanned. So it can happen, not just with any one population, it's across the board. You know, it's a diagnosis that does not discriminate. It's not limited to just one, you know, population. So I think that stigma and the awareness, it, it just sounds like everything goes together, increasing that shift from surviving to thriving. We will, uh, we will list those factors so that you can, you can see those in our program notes. Um, so I'm, I'm willing to even give you the slide if you like it, Ooh, you I can guess. put a slide in there. And I was, I was just going to comment a little bit more on, on stigma that affects things in multiple ways. So I know providers are hesitant to make the diagnosis because of the stigma. I also know that all types of families experience stigma, whether it's the stigma of being a birth parent, whether it's the stigma of being an adoptive parent and feeling like you need to identify yourself that way as an adoptive parent to reduce um, 
negative reactions towards you? Or is it just leaving your house and, you know, the worry about behavior problems and how people might judge you in the grocery store if your child gets upset? You know, so it's, it really, and then it, for the person who has FASD, oftentimes it can make them feel marginalized and discriminated against. So it's, it impacts us all at all levels. Um, it's not an easy thing to tackle, but I think it's so important that we try to do that work in, in reducing stigma. Yes, yes. And again, I'm so glad you're addressing the complexities within all of this because it, there really are multi layers within this, you know, from overall across the board systemic to, to, you know, to familial to individualized. So I'm, I'm so thankful that you're, you're addressing these, you know, these levels of how care is impacted. Let's talk about characteristics that you feel, um, supports, programs, services for the FASD community should have, what do you think would make up a good program or service um, that can meet the, not only the needs of an individual with an FASD, but also nurture the strengths as well? So I did a study a, a number of years ago here in Rochester that, that really asked that specific question. And I really drew upon the lived experiences of families and providers to really find out what do what are those characteristics that people think would be helpful? Because honestly, you know, I think families know what their children need. So I really tried to draw on that experience. And there were really five main themes that came out from that study. The first is that supports need to be available across the lifespan. This FASD is a lifespan condition. Those supports need to be there. They also need to take a proactive and preventive approach. Families are so tired of having to wait to see their child struggle or fail to get the things that they know they need. Also, it needs to be individualized. People with FASD vary quite a lot. And so everyone has their own unique talents and strengths and challenges. And so we need to be able to customize those interventions. A one size fits all is not gonna work for this population. And they need to be comprehensive. You know, FASD is a super complex condition. It affects all parts of the body. It impacts, you know, it's a brain-based disability. It, you know, impacts not only the person who has FASD, but also the family and the community in which that person resides. And so we need to be able to think more holistically and comprehensively. And then super important, it needs to be coordinated across systems and developmental periods. I don't know if Natalie, in your experience, you felt like you were being pulled in a thousand different directions for services, but I hear that so much from families and just understanding the lingo and the forms and all the things you have to do when you got five different people coming to your house. And, you know, so there's gotta be a way that there can be systems of care that are just more streamlined for this population. Yes. Oftentimes, and I know when our son was younger, um, but now as he is, you know, he's 18 and, and we're kind of doing that long transition road of after he's, he's done with homeschool. So after, but when he was younger and, and I, I, I'm, I hear other parents saying this is it's almost like silos of care. It's like, this is where you go for educational. This is where you go for occupational, you know, versus 
one comprehensive multidisciplinary type of program. And they are out there, you know, there, there are programs like that out there that address all those, but they're very few and far between, unfortunately. And the, the five themes that I mentioned actually fit really well with a medical home model that is growing in popularity. And so if you could design a medical home for people with FASD, these are the five themes that I would recommend um, based on that lived experience and wealth of knowledge that um, I gathered from families and providers. You know, the families and providers I talked with also gave a number of really specific concrete strategies for people with FASD across the lifespan, their caregivers and systems. And I'm happy to share the link for that paper. It's, um, it was funded by the National Institutes of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, so it's um, freely available. And as, part, as far as research studies go, I'd have to say it's a bit easier to read and accessible to people. There's a lot of quotes from families and providers and visuals that I'm happy to share the link for the show notes that if people want to learn more and see what specific strategies and, and, uh, and services would be useful across the lifespan, I'm happy to share that. That's terrific. So we will have that link in our program notes um, let's talk about the mobile health app because um, as a wife of someone who makes mobile apps for a living, and also when I, I want to say about a year or two ago when publicity, especially like in the no FOSS, um, you know, newsletters would come up and talk about the app. It's, this is really exciting. So can you talk a little bit about the, the mobile health app and, and hopefully the goals and what you see for it doing for the FASD community? Yeah, this has been one of the most exciting and fun projects I've worked on um, and lots of new areas to learn about for sure in terms of the technology. Um, but you know, we have some reasonable evidence and ideas of what people need for FASD. And the problem is that these things are not broadly available. So we're trying to turn to technology to see if we can develop products and resources that are scalable and easily accessible to families. So our first step, and probably many years in the future of all the things that we have envisioned for next, but our first step has been developing what we're calling the Families Moving Forward Connect intervention. And it's derived from an existing in-person parent consultation program called Families Moving Forward that was developed by a dear colleague of mine, Heather Carmichael Olson at Seattle Children's Research Institute and University of Washington. And she developed this intervention specifically for families raising children with FASD. We've been implementing it in person now since 2013 in Rochester, and she's been implementing it since the early 2000s. Wonderful program, but it's not very accessible for a lot of people. It's only offered in a few areas of the country. So, we decided to give it a try to see if we could develop an app based on this information. And it's, it's actually gone very well that much of it translates into an app. And the thing about the app is that we were really mindful about, we're limited by the providers who are knowledgeable FASD. So we decided to make this app self-directed by parents, but also include a component where families can connect with each other and share their lived experience and wisdom together, building on the knowledge that they're gaining from the app. So the app has five main components. There's the learning modules. There are 12 different modules in the learning modules and it follows this little path um, 
towards the sun uh, based on the original program. So it offers hope, but there's it's a bumpy road too. But the, so there's 12 learning modules um, that are very consistent with the standard families moving forward program ordered in a little bit different way with some additional exercises and things so families can learn that themselves versus a therapist. Um, but there's a lot of really nice resources in there. There's over a hundred videos that we filmed, which was so fun to learn how to do, but oh my goodness, that's a lot of video editing um, in there and a lot of wonderful families who agreed to help us out with that. We also have the family forum, which is where families can connect with each other. Um, it's moderated um, by a peer um, who has had experience uh, with FASD. There's also a library where families can learn and get learn in additional areas and go deeper in their learning or optional content that they're interested in, number of fact sheets and, and every single video and the whole app is there. Um, we also have the notebook, which is where in as people finish different exercises within the app, it gets saved in the notebook section. So they don't have to like go back and try to figure out where their responses were about their child. It's all in one place. There's some additional tools and some things we're planning to build further in that area. And lastly, there's a dashboard section where you can kind of see your progress. You get to make a fun little avatar that's in the forum that lives there. Um, and there's also a behavior tracking tool that families can use um, to track specific behaviors um, that they want to sort of see as they share information with their doctors or just to sort of see patterns. Um, we're working on refining that some more too. So that's sort of the overview of it in terms of the components. We've been developing it over the last four years very systematically. When do you see this um, becoming available to parents and caregivers? Yeah, that's the question I get a lot. And um, I wish I could just like develop it and just instantly get it out there. But my heart as a researcher is really wanting to make sure that it works. I don't want to put something out there to families that is subpar or is not designed in a way that is useful for families. So we've been really developing this systematically and carefully, and it does take longer, but I also think the end product is going to be really as as helpful as we can make it for families. So we've been engaging families all along and to get their input. So much of my work, I, I see that value of that lived experience and expertise. And I wanna really work together with people to make sure everything that we're doing is well informed by that. So we did initial focus groups um, across five different cities in the US to understand which design elements and components, um, what families thought about those. We then did two rounds of beta testing last year after we had our initial prototypes in iOS and Android. And we have a feasibility trial going on right now. Um, we just finished with our iOS users and we'll be releasing to Android soon. We have an RCT, so that's a randomized controlled trial um, that we're hoping to enroll over 200 families to participate in. And that'll be sometime in the probably late spring, summer, where we'll um, try to get a, a, as many people as we can to try the ALP out for us. And we'll ask them to do surveys before and after to see how things change and to really see how helpful it is for people. Great. So 
hopefully within the next year or two, this will be out and available for the community. That's fantastic. And it's exciting because I have seen, you know, just following it, this has been a long process, but again, to, to know that this is going to be such a helpful and beneficial tool for so many families, that's just really exciting news. So that is definitely something to look forward to. We really are taking that input from families very seriously and carefully. We've had, I think we counted it up last week. We had over, I think, 29 individual refinements that people suggested that they thought the app, um, to make the app easier to use, more accessible to help them get the information they wanted quicker and easier and to help them remember to use the app. So we've been working on trying to add these refinements in that I think are gonna make the app the best that it can be. We've also are in the early stages of planning a teacher companion to the app. That's something we've heard from families over again in our, tri- in our studies that not only do they wanna have materials to share with parents in their advocacy, but they want a resource that f- teachers can go to to use and learn and apply many of the things in the app with their students in the classroom who have FASD. We're also starting to work on an app for adults uh, with FASD to manage their health and wellness and you know support self-advocacy. So that's an exciting direction that we're, we haven't fully launched in, but we're, we're, we've got the plans in place and are starting to make some progress there. I will definitely be paying close attention to all of that. That's just exciting news to hear. Uh, So let's keep the momentum going and talk about steps that parents and caregivers in the community can shift from the mindset of, oh my goodness, I'm surviving FASD to, hey, we're, we're thriving with FASD. I think one of the first things is recognizing that children and adults with FASD are really doing their best. And in most cases, teachers are too. We may just not be equipped yet with all the information and understanding we need to do better. And of course there are barriers, but I think giving everyone grace, including ourselves as parents and continuing to work towards change. We all have moments that aren't our finest, but seeing these problems and challenges as areas for growth and skill building are gonna be helpful. I think also looking for and keeping those joys and strengths that your child brings to your family, I think that helps, especially in those times that are harder, really remembering those special joys and those things can be helpful. Also looking for those talents and interests and getting creative and finding ways to have help kids and adults build and celebrate those interests and be able to be included as as much as they can in all aspects of the community. And I think reframing also makes a huge difference. I'm assuming that topic you have discussed with your listeners in the past, Um, but you know, really reframing is trying to understand behavior from a brain-based viewpoint. And we can look for those underlying disabilities that may be contributing to the confusing behavior that we see it's going to help us reduce our frustration to be able to see those joys. And it offers up ideas for supports so we can think about those and the supports we can to really help them thrive. And lastly, and most importantly, 
is finding those source of supports as caregivers to help each other through. It's hard to get in that thriving mindset when you feel like you're just overwhelmed and beat down. So for family, for many families, this is faith. This is other parents who understand whether that be someone in your community or someone on the internet who has a kid with FASD, podcasts, online communities, or just even those natural supports of friends and family. It's one of those things that you just really can't do this alone. You need to have those supports. And I think that's really key for families to be able to, to help their loved ones thrive. That's wonderful. And you bring up such a valid point, Christy, that when you really truly understand FASD as a brain-based disability, then that is the basis of change in, in different aspects of life, you know, spiritual, familial, independent, you know, independence or moving towards independence or interdependence, as I like to say, things like, you know, interacting with the community. When, when you understand how FASD is and how it's different in every person, because it is a spectrum disorder, when you can make that change in mindset and see it as a brain-based disability, and like you said, you know, then it starts a ripple effect in how it can change your mindset from being overwhelmed and, and just surviving to being able to, to say this person, this individual has many talents and okay, this symptom is coming from this place. And I know that this needs an accommodation or, or whatnot. Again, as a parent, I'm so thankful that you're in, in the community and that you are working so tirelessly to, to help in so many different factors of FASD awareness and prevention and, and understanding. So, so thank you for sharing that. We call our podcast FASD Hope because we, we like to share that along this journey, which is bumpy and, and which, is, which is challenging, there is hope. You know, we're releasing this episode in the beginning of 2021, and I know people are always hopeful in the new year for, for new things, especially with this past year, you know, um, people are just ready to, to move forward. Um, what words of hope can you offer to our audience about as we move forward into 2021 and how we can move forward from, again, from thinking about surviving to thriving? Well, I have, there's one quote that, that I have come across that Dan Dabowski, I don't know if you've met him before. He's a real advocate in the field of FASD. And he said this, you know, a number of years ago, and it just really stood out to me that his quote is, we must move from viewing the individual as failing if she does not do well in a program to viewing the program as not providing what that individual needs in order to succeed. And so, you know, people with FASD want to do well and thrive. I mean, who doesn't, you know? And so it's our role and job to help support them and finding those meaningful and activities and relationships to have a full inclusive life. And I've, I've met many adults and teens with FASD who have wonderful insights and wonderful contributions and can really thrive if we can just kind of take our heads out of the expectations and these box and really think about break down the box and just, you know, we have, it takes a lot of creativity, but it can definitely be done. I've seen many people thrive. They need people in their lives who get them and that support them and understand them and just 
cherish them for who they are and, and help make the world see that too. So it's not an easy road, but I think it's an important goal to work towards. Um, I think also giving yourself and your loved one with FASD grace when things don't go the way you wish. And then just keep trying to move forward and reach out to others. I think those are some of my key messages of hope. And this has been such a wonderful conversation with you. You really have captured the essence of of your EndNote presentation from ProofCon 2020. And I hope this inspires our listeners and and people out there to, to see that, yes, we can make this change from a survival mindset to, okay, hey, let's thrive, let's celebrate. So Thank you for for sharing all of this wonderful um, insight and advice and experience. So what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? I would say probably the best way is for folks to uh, check out the Mount Hope Family Center website, which you have linked. Um, My contact information and resources are there. I also have a Twitter account that you are welcome to follow me at CLPetranko. Um, and so we've got a lot of people I'm following to that are in the FASD research community and clinical community. So feel free to check that out. Yeah. Those are probably the easiest ways to find me out there. Terrific. And we will list all of those handles and, uh, links in our program notes, um, on for today's episode. So I am excited to move forward in 2021 and Christy, thank you so much for, uh, giving us the pep talk that we need. And, uh, thank you for being on FASD hope. And I hope, uh, you can come back again later on this year to give us an update, especially on the the app and and all the other things that are happening. Yeah, I would Uh, love to. And thanks again for having me. And I think it's just I think the only way to really move forward with FASD is to kind of get out of silos and, and really work together, families, providers, you know, individuals with FASD, self-advocates. I think we all just need to, to kind of pull together. It's the only way our voices are going to be heard. Definitely. Thank you for joining us and we'll catch you next time. Take care. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week. And remember, to be informed, take care, and always have hope.